Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. A couple brief announcements before we get to this, this week's show. First, if you like the Politics Guys podcast, you should definitely check out our newsletter. It comes out every Sunday, just like our weekly news review, and it's got our take on recent political events, the best of what we read lately, updates and announcements about the podcast, and uh, occasionally some other stuff. Getting it is really easy. Just go to our website, politicsguys.com, and sign up on the form you'll see there. You can't miss it. And if you're concerned about us giving away your email address, we understand. We promise we won't give it away, uh, barter it away, share it, or otherwise distribute it to anyone else. Okay, a second announcement. You know, a while ago, Jay and I said we would not endorse anything we didn't use and believe in. Well, here's something that I absolutely love and that I'm betting some politics guys listeners might like too. Craft coffee. If you like really good coffee and you're not satisfied with your local options, and that was definitely me, Craft Coffee is a great way to go. They deliver fresh roasted coffee to your door at a price that beats anything else I've found. I'm paying right now $11.99 for 12 ounces, and that's with free shipping. And they've got a price match and satisfaction guarantee as well. Now, they gave me a discount code to share, which, which saves you 15% on your first delivery. And uh, it also gives me a totally free delivery if anyone uses it. And considering how much coffee I drink, this is a great way to indirectly support the show. Now, aside from the fact that they're based in Brooklyn, which I think everyone not from Brooklyn is kind of tired of, this is my ideal coffee place. And so if you're interested, go to craftcoffee.com and enter in the discount code N5F-SQV. That's N5F-SQV and check it out. I think you'll like it. All right, on to this week's show. Well, once again this week, Russian hacking dominated the news. Now, we now know that the CIA, the FBI, and the Director of National Intelligence all agree that Russia didn't just hack in the Democratic Party email accounts, they did so intending to help Donald Trump get elected. They also hacked information on the Democratic congressional candidates, or at least some of them, releasing information damaging to those candidates who were in a number of close House races. Now, the intelligence agencies agree that the Republicans were hacked too, though the Republican Party denies this, but that the Democrats were prioritized by the Russians. Russian, sorry. President-elect Trump has called these charges ridiculous, and he points out that you can't trust the intelligence community because, after all, they're the people that said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Now, to me, that's an argument that makes about as much sense as saying that the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers, NBA champions, are a bad basketball team because back in 2001, they went 29-53. and 53. Uh, now, we talked about this issue in last week's show, and a number of listeners commented that it might not have been our absolute finest hour. And so the news cycle has generously given us another crack at it. And I've thought about this for the last few weeks, and here's how I've broken it down. So, Jay, I hope you don't mind if I kind of lay this out, and then you can sort of have Please. at it. Yes. All right. Yes. So, first, Russia didn't actually hack the election. There was no tampering with ballots or election apparatus or anything like that. 
But so what did Russia do exactly? Well, I think there are three things here. Number one, they illegally penetrated systems of both the Republicans and the Democrats. And even if those systems had really good security, they couldn't have withstood state-sponsored hacking attacks. I mean, it's like a, a, like a screen door trying to stop a battering ram, basically. Uh, second, they shared their illegally obtained information regarding Democrats, information that was damaging to Hillary Clinton, but also damaging uh, to Democrats who were in close uh, congressional races. They shared that with WikiLeaks. And third, they helped in the dissemination of fake news that was damaging to Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. So why is this different than what governments always do? Well, okay, governments certainly hack all the time. But what they don't do is publicize the information like the Russians did in a very clear attempt to alter an election. And to me, more important than this is this has never happened in a U.S. election. And I think that's thanks almost certainly to technological changes that have made this sort of information easier to get and easier to distribute with, you know, some degree of uh, deniability. In this case, of course, by using WikiLeaks as uh, a middleman, or you might call them a useful idiot. Um, and finally, I think if we don't respond and respond forcefully to this, we're inviting more of this sort of activity in the future, which isn't good for Democrats or Republicans. And I'm thankful that President Obama has said that we will respond, and also I'm thankful that congressional Democrats and Republicans are supporting a full investigation of the Russian hacking. So, Jay, what do you think? I I don't disagree with you on on many of those points. Um, yeah, absolutely, we ought to investigate it. Absolutely, uh, to the extent we can do something back to the Russians, uh, we ought to do that. Um, you know what? Where again, where I I come down on this though is to to some extent. Uh, it all comes back to what internal systems uh, we have, our political parties have to prevent this. I know you said that, you know, you, you couldn't have any defenses against a state-sponsored hacking attack. Uh, but but I, I don't think that's true. And if you look at the facts as they're coming out, and they will continue to come out, um, a lot of this is that, uh, you know, John Podesta screwed up and essentially gave Vladimir Putin his password. Um that's that was the big the big break in, uh, and and I and I'm I'm speaking this not as as a Republican but uh, as someone who practices in this area our firm does a lot of cybersecurity work, and you know the the idea that this is the, the exactly the type of thing that we counsel people against all the time and these are the kind of things you have to watch out for and uh, the the spear phishing operations and and so forth, uh, and and these. These people who should have known better fell for it. Uh, there was the New York Times piece uh, discussing this, and it's it's sort of funny because the Times is sort of, again, apologetic for the the DNC and saying that well the the DNC is a a uh, nonprofit organization and so doesn't have the resources of uh, you know corporations uh, to have internet security, which is which is so in, entirely just nonsensical when you realize the amount of money that that pours through the DNC. Uh, and compare it to a lot of small companies that don't have that kind of budget but still have better internet security. Um, so, look, no, the the Russians. We have to understand that the Russians and the Chinese and who you know who knows who else uh, are going to be doing this kind of thing. They're going to continue to try to do it, uh, and and we have to defend against it. Um, you know, so I. I okay, yeah, I see, I guess, I see I your guess, point. And, that's that's yeah. my that's that's my take is. Um, and I guess what I was trying to make clear of the 
uh, last week was to the extent that uh, there are those on the left who are, you know, claiming that, OK, now the election's illegitimate somehow sure. because the Russians were hacking. I, I think that's that's nonsensical for, for two reasons. One, because I don't know that, you know, these hacks necessarily uh, change the course of the election. Uh, if if anything, I would say they did more to you know hurt Hillary uh, vis-a-vis Bernie, and you can say, well, uh, that kept Bernie supporters at home and so forth, and and maybe it did. Uh, but either way, I, I don't I don't think that sure that's what that's what turns well, us. Well, yeah, and and I you know I agree with you in part. Certainly, the the story that comes out about the the Podesta uh, email hack that that clearly was a, a major human error type of thing. Now, that was only one of a number of hacks, though we should point out. Though that was the sure. one that dominated a lot later in the game there. But you know, and and I certainly agree with you that. Both parties, because both party systems were were penetrated, both parties could upgrade their their security and make it a lot harder for the Russians to do. And so I, I agree and, and with apparently that. Apparently, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the shout out here because because you we differed on this last week. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal reporting on this, the Republican system was more difficult to penetrate, uh, and and they they couldn't get through that uh, only to a smaller extent, and then sort of gave it up. Now, we, I mean, again, you can argue they gave it up because, um, you know, they decided, well, we we just we don't we're not interested in, in Republican emails, which seems to me far fetched. I think they're interested in whatever intelligence they can gather um, or, you know, that, that we just wanted uh, stuff that will hurt Hillary. Um, sure. Or you can say they gave it up because it wasn't the, the low hanging fruit and it could be a combination of the two. Okay, and that's not an unreasonable argument. I think where we differ is I, I find it a lot easier to believe that the, the Russians got through more on the Democrat side because they were much more interested in getting that information and they, they specifically targeted and prioritized their uh, their hacking efforts on democratic systems because they felt that that would, that would be in their own their own best interest to have uh, Donald Trump elected. And you, you obviously – don't agree, at least don't feel that as strongly as I do. No, I mean, I would say I, I don't know that all the evidence supports that. I think the there's there's the other conclusion. Well, two things. One, I mean, if the uh, if the Russians were looking for somehow uh, damning information on Donald Trump, um, you know, do you need to spend the hacking resources to get that? I mean, sure, he'll, he'll kind of right. he'll kind of come to you. Fair enough. Um, you know what I mean? Just just sign up for Twitter. I mean, it's sort of that's that's all the hacking you need to do. Um, but no, there. I think there was there was more of the sense of the low hanging fruit, and and again, an investigation will will determine these sure. sort of things. But I think once, you know, once you're in, then it's it's uh, there's more stuff to find. The other piece that I think, and and John Podesta wrote something, uh, and I, I think it was in the New York Times. Um, it might have been the Washington Post. It, it could have been both. Um, which the piece which I thought was just absolutely horrible, um, complaining about how the FBI wasn't. Uh, you know, helpful enough and so forth. And um, if if you read these other reports, there are indications, and I, I posted one of these on our uh, Facebook page. Right. The FBI made multiple calls to the DNC's um, essentially security provider. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and these calls went unreturned. And and to me, that's just sort of flabbergasting. And this is this is going back into the summer. Uh, the FBI said, hey, we're th- we think you're being hacked. And, uh, you know, then, then followed up with numerous other phone calls and really, hey, it's the FBI, please call us. Right. 
and and they weren't returned. And to me, that's that's sort of just stunning negligence. And if that's the way you're operating, well, then you sure. deserve to be hacked. Yeah, well, um, I, I, no one deserves to be hacked. The complaint was, well, they should have called someone higher in the DNC and they should have come out personally and so forth like that. But I think I think my, my sense was, and, and a number of listeners commented on that, but the, the feeling that, that, that your argument seemed to them to be that, well, you know, this is just a case of Democrats having, having crummy security. And so just as you said, they deserve to be hacked and kind of uh, someone called it a blaming the victim type of scenario, like, oh, well, they were asking for it as if, you know, in that kind yes. of analogy. Yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm blaming the victim. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, and uh, OK, no, fair enough. No, fair I, enough. I mean, it, and, it's and sort I think of you're go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, it, this is because this is sort of the, the real world um, that, that these threats are out there. And if you're going to go out there and just sort of with the idea that, uh, you know, pretend, well, they shouldn't do that, so they won't do that, uh, you're just dangerously naive. I mean, sure. it's sort of like you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to go camping in bear, bear country and I'm going to wear a salmon stuffed uh, salmon suit. Uh, you know, I mean, well, well bears of, can't control what they're doing. But yeah, I see your point. But I think the point is that there are two parts of this. Number one, there's the security part. And then number two, there's the we want to do whatever we can to make it incredibly painful for Russians to, to, to do this, to make sure that if they do this and we catch them doing this, that the costs to them are far greater than any benefit they will get. And I think that's what both Republicans and Democrats in, in Congress are interested in doing is imposing some some costs on them to make sure that that uh, when they, if they, if Vladimir Putin, who uh, all intents is, you know, behind this sort of thing, ultimately, if he wants to do that again, he will think twice and say, "Geez, we, we, it was, it was, it imposed such a cost on us last time that maybe we shouldn't interfere with U.S. elections again and just go back to interfering with elections in other countries that can't fight back like the United States can." I'm all, I'm all for that. Okay. Well, I think let's, that's, let's go get, let's go get them. That's, I think that's, that's the important <laughs> point. You know, another part of it, of course, is Donald Trump's reaction, right? Who, who called, you know, he called it ridiculous. And so, and a lot of folks are concerned and saying this is all of a piece with a, a policy and, and, and appointments that people see, uh, many people see as uh, dangerously pro-Putin and pro-Russian. Now, my take on this is, Certainly that that's possible, and I have some major concerns about how our relation with Russia is going to change in the Trump administration. But my main take on this is, well, he's saying this stuff because the Electoral College hasn't met yet. And he wants to make sure that he wants to tamp down any of that until he is officially elected president. And I would not be surprised after the election for him to, you know, sort of, not necessarily reverse himself, but maybe say something along the lines of, you know, seeing more intelligence and 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 uh, if, if he ever goes to any briefings, which I guess he will occasionally and kind of, you know, being a little taking a little more of a hard line. But until the Electoral College meets, I don't think he's going to feel, you know, completely secure in that. What do you think? Uh, you know, I don't know that he's he's worried about the Electoral College, but I think there was a, a sense uh, among folks on the the right uh, and especially this became a little bit of a concern when these things were coming from John Podesta, uh, that this isn't just the lunatic friend saying, oh, the, you know, the, the election is illegitimate and so forth. Uh, and I think there was maybe he felt a need to tamp down on that. Um, you know, again, it's Donald Trump. So he, he says what he says and, and he, he says it his way. Uh, it doesn't always make sense. It is not always terribly nuanced. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I don't think he's going to 
um, you simply accept, uh, you know, for further Russian hacking, even, you know, regardless of what you want to say about uh, how, how he views Putin or the Russians, um, my sense is he is someone who would would be all about still Internet security, about beefing up things and about not not allowing uh, any other country to kind of attack our our uh, resources, our, our uh, institutions. OK, so so I guess it's. But, but again, I, I guess, you know, something else to consider. And this should be main. I mean, I mean, the DNC and the RNC are not parts of the U.S. government. Right. Um, they are their own <clears throat> private, independent uh, nonprofit uh, companies, uh, the, you know, political parties, uh, and uh, it, it's not something that the government provides them security. Uh, now, again, certainly, you know, the FBI uh, looks at these things from sort of a crime-fighting um, view, and, and just as they do with with uh, a lot of major corporations. So that's there, but to the extent that you can say, you know, what what could uh, Donald Trump do to better secure the DNC? Well, not much. Right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that, and certainly they're going to be doing that. I, 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 I'm sure that that has actually been underway since they, they found out about that. That's for sure. You know, I mentioned the Electoral College a little bit ago, and of course, they vote on Monday, December 19th. That's the day after this show airs. And, you know, while, while some people are still holding out hope, some, some of my friends on the left are still holding out that last little bit of hope that enough electors will withhold their votes from Donald Trump to deny him the presidency, uh, that's, that's not going to happen, right? And while a few electors might no. be faithless and not vote, the way the voters in their states have instructed them, there's no way that enough are going to do that to alter the outcome. And I, I, I think you agree with me on that, Jay, right? Absolutely. This yeah. is one prediction I think we feel very confident about. Uh, <laughs> We're really going to yeah. get this one right. We'll yeah, let, let's see. I'm, yeah. um, I'm not going to go out on the limb and actually give numbers, I don't no, think. No, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, there was one that one elector, one Republican elector, I believe, from Texas who said he was not going to vote for Trump. There might be a couple more, but, yeah, it's not going to be uh, Hillary Clinton needs 30-something to flip, and that's not going to happen. But, you know, I was thinking about this, and really – I feel like the framers of the Constitution designed the Electoral College for the reason, uh, for a reason, of course they did. And I think this is exactly the reason. I mean, here you have a candidate who is the choice of the people in the states, and that's obviously different than the choice of the people nationally, where Hillary Clinton is the clear winner by like something close to three million votes. But a candidate who many well, part. Oh, go ahead. But yeah, go ahead. I'm saying so. He's a candidate, though, who many party leaders have publicly disavowed. I mean, you couldn't find more, more. I think of the party elite, the the, the wise and intelligent kind of, you know, sort of people. I think that the framers thought would have the leading role in politics, uh, being against the choice of the people in, in you know, in, in recent memory, in generations, certainly. And and to me, the main point of having an electoral college was for the electors to check the excesses of the people if that need would arise. And if that need hasn't arisen now, for me, it's hard to imagine that it ever will. And, and so, you know, but that said, you could make a good argument that we're living in a very different world from the framers and that in 21st century America, there's essentially no situation in which electors should overturn the will of the people in the states. Uh, what do you think about that, Jay? I mean, is the electoral college is this sort of like the the ultimate test of whether the electoral college has any meaning whatsoever? That's actually a, a question that I was thinking a lot about this last week, um, 
and, and I, I don't know the answer to it, you know, and, and it's something I, I you know, we, we both could maybe go back and, and do some reading and thinking on this because the Electoral College is something that, you know, really it, it hasn't been challenged. There hasn't been much, you know, legal judicial scrutiny of it. It just always it always was what it was. Uh, there wasn't really uh, much of a counter argument against it. You know, I mean, you look to the, the Federalist Papers and uh, they sort of sell the merits of it. Um, uh, Anti-Federalists, uh, I mean, it was sort of, if anything, the Electoral College was was sort of a, a sop, a giveaway to the the anti-federalists the, who, who opposed the Constitution. So there wasn't there wasn't an argument that no 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 we need to have a national popular vote that was ever expressed back then. Um, so it's yeah it, it's it's a tough one and, and you know historically the, the the situation where you have an electoral college uh, which is um, of uh, uh, not the popular vote is is rare and. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I mean, for forever, folks were saying uh, we ought to do with the, away with the Electoral College because it's sort of meaningless because right. the person who wins the popular vote always always wins the Electoral College. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is 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 Trump the that bad? Uh, well, is I the, mean, the popular excess that bad. And here's here's the other interesting question. Do you say, look, the there's less of a problem with Donald Trump being elected, uh, even though Hillary beat him? By a you know slim margin, uh, you know nonetheless uh, um, uh, margin of the popular vote. Or is the electoral college functions more when people are so swept up by some demagogue that uh, they they the person wins, you know? Well, yeah, I think that I think by, that, by acclamation and then, right. and again that that second scenario is almost more dangerous to a to a democracy, I guess. Yeah, and to me, well, but but to me, that's sort of what the framers had in mind, at least to to a large extent. And so, it, it seems to me essentially the that close election or the not close election. No, I, I think just in any election where there where the electors feel that some demagogue has been who who will be damaging to the republic has been elected, and my, oh my God, that this is this is exactly the case. At least if you have listened to the Republican establishment, who now, of course, you know, have mostly fallen into line because they see the inevitability of this. And so, to me, this just points out the fact that the electoral college is, is sort of like the you know the the appendix of the body politic. It's a uh, it, it's a uh, it has no real purpose anymore. Exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's even a better one, I think. So, you know, and. To me, it's just it's, it's an outmoded, uh, purposeless sort of thing because I just do not see. I could, I guess, I could envision in uh, the 18th century, maybe even in the 19th century, the electors doing something against the popular will in the states. But in 21st century America, boy, I, I cannot, I cannot imagine that happening. Right. No, I think that's right. It was a different world. Yeah. Uh, based on first who could vote, uh, who did vote, how many people were even literate. Um, you know, the closest that I can come, thinking back historically, to a candidate where you're like, "Geez, would you know? Do we do we count on the electoral college to stop him?" Where there was this much popular concern, well, there's this much popular support of a candidate, but. Uh, institutional concern would be Andrew Jackson. Yeah, and that's a, a ways uh, 18, back. Yeah, 18, 20, 28. Yeah, very different um, world. And free um, Twitter. Uh, you know, I, and, and the other thing to think about when the Electoral College was put in place, we did not have, nor had anyone really considered political parties. Right. 
Uh, well, maybe and, considered, and in, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in those days, I mean, of course, the the president, the, the vice president, was whoever got the second most votes, uh, and they could be very ideologically different people. Uh, for example, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, um, uh, then uh, who who were president and vice president, and then the, the, the 1800 election, uh, the vice president, uh, nearly the president, was was Aaron Burr. Um, and again, both, both of the same at that point, I guess we call them democratic Republicans, uh, for their party. But, but, but the, the idea was that, um, you didn't run as a ticket. Uh, and there was the fear of a demagogue of, of Burr. And of course that election was, was settled in the house. But, um, so I don't know, I, but I, I've thought about that, about, in what cases would it be justified for the Electoral College to go against uh, the popular vote? And and I, I haven't come up with an answer yet. And I think that's – I don't know that anyone has, but it's a good question to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, we'd like to thank our new supporters this week. It's a longer-than-usual list, and I want to thank you for responding so generously to my message at the beginning of last week's show about our hoping to put the politics guys on a sustainable financial footing so that we can keep things going well, well into the, the Trump administration and beyond. So first there's Dustin from um, – well, you know, I don't actually know where Dustin is from. Uh, sometimes PayPal doesn't tell us for reasons that are entirely unclear to me. And it turns out that they're going to stop telling us all together in the near future. But if you, yeah, well, yeah, it's just, I'm sure it's a security thing. I don't know. But uh, anyway, they don't want us to know where, where you guys are from. But if you put your city and state in the message box that PayPal includes on their donation form, uh, along with any message, of course, that, that you that you want us to read, that would be a big help. Now, Dustin did have a message for us, and that message is, thanks so much for the great podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dustin, yeah, wherever you are. Yep. Now, next is Andrew, also from points unknown to me. So, I don't know, Chicago, Melbourne, Moscow, you know, who knows. Um, but anyway, wherever you're from, Andrew, I'm sure it's a better place because you're there. Um, and you too, Dustin. And we thank you for supporting the show. Next, we have Andrew. And I know where Andrew, or Andrew Edward, Edward, Edward is from Alberta, Canada. And he, Edward has made a generous contribution to the show. And we thank you very much for that, Edward. Another one of our very Edward hoping to stem the flow of refugees. Yes, exactly. Into his, into his nation. <laughs> yes, Thank we're, you, we're sorry about that. Yeah. Um, another one of our very generous contributors this week is Bond from. Uh, let me see if I get this right. Uh, Papillon, Nebraska. Uh, and oh, I, but okay. I hope I pronounced that right. And uh, Bond says, "Keep up the good work." And finally. There's Jeremy from New York City who made an extremely generous donation. Um, Jeremy obvi obviously heard my comment about it, uh, last week about us wanting to keep the show going past the spring, and he wrote, you're not getting out of it that easily. Four more years. Um, so <laughs> we'll do what we can, Jeremy. Thank, um, thank you, Jeremy. And yeah. you should apologize for what you said about Brooklyn to Jeremy because, uh, you know, he may. Well, he, you know, he might not be from Brooklyn. He doesn't list Brooklyn, yeah, I understand. That would be good. But anyway, if you are from Brooklyn, Jeremy, you're one of the good ones in Brooklyn, clearly. Um, anyway, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Dustin, Andrew, Edward, Bond, and Jeremy did last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or Patreon donation links we've got up there. 
I should also mention that we've got a small but growing base of continuing monthly supporters, and that's something you can set up very easily in Patreon or PayPal. And regular monthly donations, even if they're just a buck or two, are really helpful because that lets us know more or less what we can expect and makes it a lot easier for us to plan for the future. And of course, if you set up an automatic monthly payment and you just decide that we've just gone totally to the dogs and want to cancel it, it's no problem to do that. There's no obligation or anything like that. All right. Thanks very much. And now on to our next story for this week, which is the Donald Trump continuing transition. He continues to fill out his administration. This week's big appointments, Secretary of Energy, Budget Director, and Ambassador to Israel. Now, I think energy was the highest profile pick in a way because uh, the president-elect tapped former Texas governor and Republican presidential candidate Rick Perry for the job. Um, Jay, what did you think when you heard about Rick Perry running the Department of Energy? Eh, I mean, I guess I'm sort of not not a whole lot. Um, uh, it's I, kind, it, you know. Isn't it kind of like an onion story? I mean, here's Rick Perry, the guy in 2012 who, right, who uh, said he wanted to abolish the Department of Energy when he was running for president, except he couldn't right. actually remember the Department of Energy's name. And right. now he's going to be running this department. Yes, that's that's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, uh, and, and also, I mean, that said, uh, oh, go ahead. I'll say also, you know, the last two secretaries of, of the uh, Department of Energy have had PhDs in physics. One of them had a Nobel Prize. And so what Perry brings to the job is a bachelor's in animal science from Texas A&M. So I'm sure he's very well equipped to, to handle this job and understand all the intricacies and so forth. Oh, see, so. there, there I think that's maybe a little unfair. Okay, uh, okay. As, as he, he was the governor of, of Texas, which is a major energy producer – particularly during the period when he was governor. Um, so, I mean, it, it might be fair to say, oh, this is a big fossil fuel guy. And I, I suppose that's there's probably something to that. Uh, the other thing, though, I think is that Rick Perry would also see uh, the, the the situation that he had in Texas, where if you remember looking back eight, four years ago, um, Texas was seen as sort of this economic miracle that was sort of bucking the trend of of everywhere else in the country, uh, and that was largely due to to uh, things like fracking and and uh, more discovery of of uh, fossil fuels in Texas that had their energy sector booming. Um, that boom has kind of come and gone. Uh, so I mean, I, I think he ought to be sort of sensitive to you know not only fossil fuels but understanding that there's sort of a boom and bust cycle. Well, but uh, but here's but here's the problem, Jay. Is that the Department of Energy doesn't really deal with that stuff. The name is kind of a misnomer, and maybe Donald Trump didn't under, didn't know what it dealt with. But the Department of Energy deals largely with uh, nuclear security, nuclear developing yeah. nuclear weapons, uh, uh, advanced uh, uh, technology, and that sort of thing. Which is it's kind of a weird name, but that's why the last two energy secretaries have had. Uh, well, there there was uh, one from MIT, uh, MIT, one from Stanford. And that's why they have doctorates in physics, because it's not really about fossil fuels or anything like that at all. It's very nuclear. It's about, yes. No, it's about nuclear stuff. And where do you store it? And how do you store it? And how do you develop it? And, exactly. And so, forth. so, you um, know, I, I just think this kind of this kind of follows the trend of Donald Trump picking these people who don't really seem to have any background or qualification. I mean, surely. Donald Trump could have found or his people could have found somebody to run this department who had some kind of requisite background, who could understand some of the stuff the department does, who also happened to be 
a conservative. Rick Perry, I just don't, I, I don't get that. Maybe he saw him on Dancing with the Stars and thought that's the guy, that's the guy for me. I don't know. It's a starting live bit uh, last night where they said I, where Trump, you know, as Alec Baldwin says. Uh, oh, I saw him on Dancing with Stars. Guy's got a lot of energy. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it makes no sense to me. But you know, that's. I don't think that's a hugely consequential pick uh, in a sense. I, I think the two other picks mean a lot more. The first, his budget director, and he uh, for budget director, Donald Trump has chosen South Carolina Congressman uh, Mick Mulvaney, and he is a founding member of the Tea Party Caucus, and he's also a member of what had been termed the shutdown caucus, and this is Republicans who are willing to uh, basically buck their party's leadership and shut down the government as a budget negotiating tactic. Right. They should find a better name for that. Well, yeah. I, that, well, I, I don't know that they gave that name, but he was also one of only a few dozen House Republicans who refused to back the deal that prevented the U.S. from defaulting on its debt by raising the statutory debt limit. So, in other words, he is about the hawkiest of spending hawks or deficit hawks, and to my mind... He, I mean, he makes he makes Paul Ryan look like like a crazed crazed budget buster kind of guy, and so to me, he's a horrifically bad choice. Uh, Jay, what what are your thoughts? Um, there's there's two different jobs. One, you know, when you're in Congress and uh, sort of operating in that world and engaging in sort of brinksmanship uh, with budget stuff, and it's something else entirely to be a budget director. Um, Okay. So I, I I appreciate and I I'm actually and most conservatives should be should be heartened to see a a budget hawk because that's something that's, that's really been kind of missing from the whole uh, Trump campaign the whole Trump bit um, was Thank the God. whole idea that, that you well <laughs> from my standpoint well, yeah you know yeah um, that that you know you would have someone who is is sensitive to you know tax and spending issues. So I think if you've got somebody uh, who is is solid on that, I think that's probably good. Um, is he going to you know be shutting down the government and so forth? Uh, I I very much doubt it. Um, it's it's a different role, but uh, I, I think it's it's one of these where he he sends a message uh, that this is yeah. uh, this is this is where I stand, and I I think we ought to uh, be be. Uh, more cognizant of uh, on our, our deficit and our debt. And, and as a conservative, I, I think that's, that's great. Now, you know, again, it goes to temperament sometimes of, uh, you know, do you push too far and, and run into shutdowns or, or risk uh, defaulting? And I, I, again, I don't think that would ever actually happen. Um, sure. But, uh, well, you, you know, I understand you're concerned about it. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned sending a message and so that, that brings up the last pick and the one I'm the most concerned about for ambassador to Israel. I think Donald Trump has made what I see as one of his worst picks in a cabinet. That's just chock full of bad picks. And that's oh, David, no. David Friedman. He's a bankruptcy lawyer with no diplomatic experience. He's an ally of far right forces in Israel. I mean, to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu, he so far right, he rejects the two-state solution, doesn't appear to have any problems at all with Israel building as many illegal settlements as it wants. And these are both very radical departures from decades of U.S. policy in the region. And, you know, Donald Trump has said that he wants to be the president to broker a lasting peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Of course, every president says that. But with this selection, he's made it abundantly clear that he doesn't care a bit about brokering a peace deal because this is just going to make a bad situation a whole lot worse. Uh, maybe. 
maybe. I mean, I think this is one of these. Let's let's just wait and see um, how how things play out. Uh, you know, as far as eventually brokering a peace deal between Israelis and uh, Palestinians, that that lies more with the Israelis and Palestinians than it does with with our ambassador. Uh, and to the extent you know our ambassador involved, it it lies more with with Donald Trump and what what he can do and what pressure he can exert. Um, you know, there might there might be some we've thrown this out before, sort of the only Nixon could go to China uh, type thinking here of if you have someone who is uh, very much a hardliner uh, and he would be the only person who could could reach out and, and perhaps help Netanyahu reach out to those on the right to accept some sort of a, a, a peace plan. Um, maybe there's something that that in play. Or it could be he's just uh, he's just a Jewish guy that Trump knew. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's well, no, of, I, I think there's I, that there's that too. You know? Yeah. Well, I hear what you're saying, and I think though we keep on saying the same thing. You know, I, I, we keep on saying it sounds to me, uh, and this has gone on for weeks. Saying, well, you know, this is a this is an unusual pick. This is a kind of a radical person with no experience, and maybe he won't be as bad as we think. You, you can only I mean, say that else, so many what, times, you know. What I, else? What else can you say? I mean, yeah. this is sort of, this is sort of essentially like the pregame show for the Trump yeah. administration, well, right? I well, mean, yeah, yeah. You, you know, we fair. can say, okay, this guy, we expect, uh, we expect this guy to to catch this many passes. We expect the team to focus sure. on rushing and get this many yards, but. Uh, well, it's, it's, we don't know that yet. But but it's kind of like drafting. It's kind of like drafting Tim Tebow, you know, in the middle of an, uh, an uh, middle of a you know drinking binge to be your starting quarterback and saying, well, maybe he'll maybe he'll sober up before the first game or stop partying. Uh, not you Tim know? Tebow, Johnny Manziel. I'm sorry, Johnny Manziel. Yes, yeah, yes, Tim Tebow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Tim Tebow would yeah, never be yeah, that way. He can't yeah. play, but he doesn't. Yeah. So, but you get the point. So, yeah. you know. To me, though, the last kind of vestige of, of hope I'm kind of clinging to here is I realize that the people who are really important oftentimes in day-to-day operation are the deputy secretaries, the people just below this level. We don't know what a lot of those appointments are going to be. Uh, I, I, like I said, I'm straining to try to find the best-case scenario here and give the incoming president whatever kind of benefit of the doubt I can but he every day he just seems to make it so hard for me to do that um and you know cuz i'm i'm trying to bend over backwards to not be the typical reactionary sensationalistic liberal but gosh it's it's just getting harder and harder for me all right you know there's some non-trump related news believe it or not jay we have non-trump related news to kind of end of up the show with yeah well, well yeah i guess everything's trump related now but the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate a quarter point, moving it up to a range of 0.5 to 0.75 percent. Now, that's only the second rate hike since the financial crisis of 2008. And also, the Fed expects to raise rates three more times in 2017 as the economy continues to show solid, if unspectacular, growth and the labor picture slowly improves. So, Jay, did you see this as a, a positive sign or what do you see as a pros and cons uh, here with this? I, I do see this as a positive sign. And Me again, too. this is I'm I'm just looking at this as the very, very amateur economist. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think this is it's we've had low rates for so long. And for so many who claim uh, that they're very upset about inequality and the rich getting richer and the one percent and so forth. Uh, to me, the the biggest culprit, if you want to call, call it a culprit, uh, but the biggest cause of that has been our monetary policy uh, in that those with money have been able to 
uh, borrow more money very easily, very cheaply, and make more money from it, while uh, those further down have been have been shut out. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's good in that it it uh, hopefully will fend off uh, any kind of inflationary uh, burst that uh, quite honestly I think has become a little bit more of a concern after you saw what the markets did after the after the uh, Trump election. Right. So I, you know, to me it's I think it's it's high time that the Fed did something and I think it's good uh, it's doing it small incremental uh, it is signaling ahead its uh, intention that it will do more in the future. Uh, so that there aren't those sort of shocks to the market that all of a sudden there's there's uh, the, the expense of borrowing has gone up significantly. Um, so, no, I, I think it's it's probably a, a good thing. Uh, I, again, that's me as, as a very amateur, uh, not a real economist. Um, but well, I think it's, it's a common sense thing to do. Well, I, I'm going to entirely agree with you. It's something that we all don't right. necessarily do all the time. And I will add another positive for this is when interest rates stay so low for so long, one of the big problems with this is that it removes a tool to use to try to get us out of recessions. Because when interest rates are a little bit higher, if a recession comes along, one of, the, one of the automatic things or one of the things that the Fed traditionally does is they lower interest rates to make money cheaper to borrow that can ideally help to stimulate the economy but when you have interest rates out in the, in the economy yeah exactly but when you have interest rates that are practically zero that tool is essentially removed and you don't have that option and so that's i think another positive to that so i think this is a, a good move i wouldn't say it was long overdue there were some i say that was slightly overdue i think that the fed has moved cautiously and has, has done a good job here and uh yeah it's nice to see something that we can we can both agree on as a smart sensible prudent type of move of course maybe that's because the fed is largely insulated from these political pressures i don't know um all right. You know, it's time for listener mail now. Um, first, we have Jake from Sunnyvale, California. Jake writes, Mike and Jay, love the show. People might understandably interpret the congressional election results to mean that the majority of voters chose Republicans. Now, of course, with districting and Senate representation, is it possible to have a majority of votes go to one party while the other wins a majority of congressional seats? I'd love to hear you guys talk about this. He says, how li- ask how likely is it? Did it happen in 2016? And has it ever happened? Well, oh, wow. Yeah, Jake, I did some research. I did a lot okay, of research good, on good. this. Yeah, I'm sounds ready. Like, sounds like there's like a lot of math involved. Too. Yeah, well, there, there was a fair amount of research involved, but he, here's the answer to that question. In the last 20 years, that's the last 10 House elections, the party losing the overall popular vote has won more seats only once. Uh, In 2012, the Democrats got just over 1% more total votes than the Republicans, but they only won 201 seats, the Republicans 234. And that maybe is because the Republicans did a really good job of, some would say, of gerrymandering after the 2010 census, but that's the only instance in the last 20 years. So the answer, Jake, is yes, it does happen. Um, Now, prior to that, The only other time that it happened in the 40 years of data that I looked through was 1996, when the Democrats won less than 1% more of the overall popular vote, but ended up with 206 seats to the Republicans, 227. And this was a a razor. It was much less than 1% of the overall popular vote. So that's the House side. On the Senate side, this year there were 34 elections. The Democrats won 16 races. The Republicans won 21. Uh, sorry, 20. Yeah, 20, 
21 or 22 I at think the I Louisiana see how this race. One's go. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, in terms of the popular vote, Democrats did a lot better. They got 7% more than the Republicans. So the, the short answer to your question, Jake, is yes, this does happen. And when it happens, at least in the last, you know, the last few years, the last, well, as far back as I look back, it favors Republicans. So, Jay, any, any uh, thoughts, comment on this? Well, I think the, the, the Senate numbers, uh, to me, that, that makes a lot, a lot of sense sure. uh, in that. And when you consider uh, those senators, mostly Democrat senators, are running in states that are more populous and more Democrat-leading, California and New York. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that that makes sense. Uh, um, the House one, I guess, I guess doesn't terribly surprise me. Um, but even as you said there, it's it's sort of a rare instance when it happens. Um, and with House districts, it's also a little trickier because of the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the racial drawing of, of uh, districts uh, that that makes things sometimes a little a little trickier where you get. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, and again, well, that's going to that's going to drive up a higher Democrat. Now, and I guess I guess the other question is we're talking popular popular vote. Uh, versus population of districts, so turnout can also yeah factor into those those things but, also. But there's also the fact that I mean, whoever's in charge of of the state legislature will do their best to to gerrymander yeah. the district, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. It just so happened after 2010, there I mean, the Republicans did what was a strategically smart thing is they made an all out effort at the state level to control those state houses and those state legislatures so they could so they could you know get an advantage in redistricting, and that's exactly and we talked about this a few shows back exactly what President Obama one of the big things he wants to focus on in his post-presidency is having the Democrats do the same thing because the Democrats during his presidency have gotten absolutely wiped out at the state level. They need to do mm-hmm. some serious rebuilding so you know they can they can hopefully get control of more of these uh, uh, more of these states and have more of a say after 2020 after the 2020 census. All right. Yeah. So that was a really good question. I thought so too. Yeah. Um, next we have Kenny from New York City. Kenny writes, hey, politics guys, I'm a somewhat new listener to the podcast and would like to provide some feedback and ask a couple of questions. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a pre-med student in New York. Uh, growing up in New York has had its impact on my ideology, considering how liberal and democratic it is. I listen to your podcast because I hate the thought of being one-sided and blind to any other point of view, so I try to be open-minded as possible, and listening to your podcast provides me with a great view of both sides. From your podcast, I take away a better understanding of the rights views and can sometimes agree with them. Um, Listening to your podcast lets me be productive when I'm making index cards or even just walking to get lunch. Now, I have have two questions. First, what are your educational backgrounds? And second, in your opinion, was Obama a good or bad president? Now, in my... Where the hell did you go to school? Now, now in my email, I I sent Kenny an email response, and I told him that we're actually planning an entire Ask the Politics guys on President Obama's legacy, and I think we're going to try to do that right around the time of the inauguration, which kind of is, I think, the appropriate time. But uh, so, I mean, my short version would be I'm kind of uh, on the Obama good or bad president. I would put him on the good side slightly. Jay, I, you would, I'm sure, disagree. And we'll, we'll talk a lot about our reasons for that in that show. But that's kind of a big question. And I don't want to try to just give kind of a, a short and superficial answer to that. But yeah. 
as to our educational backgrounds, um, Jay, why do you want to you want to tell folks where, uh, where where you got all your fancy book learned from? Sure. Well, I, I graduated from uh, Boardman High School, uh, just outside of Youngstown, uh, and uh, then I went to uh, Baldwin Wallace College, um, where now, I university. majored. I, I originally majored in music, um, but that was too tough, so I switched to uh, political science uh, and history. Um, followed up by law school at uh, The Ohio State University. Very good. Um, uh, following that, I, I was a, uh, a judicial staff attorney and magistrate for a common pleas judge, and I've clerked for the uh, Sixth Circuit uh, 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 Court of Appeals. Uh, and, um, oh, I, well, I left out after, this because it's because educational, but uh, I worked at the, the Ohio uh, State House as an aide to the Speaker Pro Tem and, and to the Speaker uh, for about five years, uh, sort of before and during law school. Um, and that's sort of, you know, where I got a lot of, of sort of the insider, what I, you know, do and, and how campaigns work and, and so forth. Um, and then I am, I am now an attorney in, in uh, private practice. All right. My, and my background is I share a little bit of it with Jay. We actually met at Baldwin Wallace College, now Baldwin Wallace University, um, back in, back in the day at where I also got my undergraduate degree in political science. And from there, I went on to, uh, the University of Kentucky, where I got my master's and doctorate in political science, focusing on, uh, public policy and American politics. And, uh, then I went to a variety of schools to teach. First, uh, Lake Superior State University. University in, in frigid Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and then I went to uh, the University of Evansville for a while, and now I am at Northern Kentucky University, where I've been, oh, since 2001. Finally, this from Ben, who writes from Pendle, like Pendle, I believe it is, in, in the UK. And Ben writes, hi, I love your podcast, especially as it's so balanced. The well-suited combination of a moderate liberal, though you could be a, called a compassionate conservative in Britain, and a non-crazy Republican, that would be you, Jay. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, is, is what makes the politics guy so great. It is rare to get an American show that is so balanced and akin to discussions you get on the BBC, especially wow. with, yeah, I know, with heavily biased broadcasts like Fox News and InfoWars in the background. I look forward to hearing your next podcast. Well, thank you very much, Ben. And, of course, if you have a comment, question, or correction for us, uh, send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com, or you can message us on the Facebook Politics Guys page. And while we won't read every email on the air, we most definitely will personally respond to every listener email and Facebook message we get. Okay, well, that is it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. Our email, again, is mail at politicsguys.com. And our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. And we'd really appreciate if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you happen to use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. And, of course, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on the website. Now, this is normally where I'd say the Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. But next Sunday is Christmas Day. The Sunday after that is New Year's Day. And, Jay, I don't think either of us are really interested in broadcasting on New Year's Day or Christmas Day. Um, well, we're interested. Well, we're interested, but, yeah, you know, but we have other things going on. But, yeah, we got – yeah. 
And honestly, it would be nice to have a little bit of a break. Uh, I've been going at it pretty, uh, pretty heavily for a while with understandably so, but so we, while we won't be recording new shows on either of those days, we will be back with a new show on January 7th and we hope you'll join us. And and we'll, although we will also have some interviews that we'll be yep. posting in yeah, the meantime. Absolutely. We have one or two oh, that, yes. that, that to fill up that gap if you're feeling a, a little lack of you're politics, really guys. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have some of that there. So thanks very much, and we will see you in 2017.